Welcome to Grief and Gratitude, a podcast by Coffee and Grief. I'm Maria, and this is my mom, Annie. We're a mom-daughter team who talk about grief. We started this podcast to learn more about grief, to be part of the conversation in normalizing grief. We're not looking for answers because there really aren't any. We're just looking to have a conversation. So to tell you a little bit about us and our stories, um, my biggest grief was being widowed when I was 28 and pregnant with Maria's older brother. Everything in my world changed eventually for the good. And that took time. That took a lot of time. Eventually there was Scott, my fabulous husband, then Maria, my beautiful daughter. I'm fond of saying that grief is the source of my superpowers. It's where I learned to not take time for granted. It's where I learned compassion and love in a bigger, deeper way. It's where I learned to be a beauty seeker, a joy seeker. Now my current heartache is around my mom and her dementia. For me, I was raised by my mom here who was grieving. Grief was very normalized in our home. It's something we talked about often in the car or at the dinner table. And a thing I've realized through these conversations is that when we don't share our griefs, they can become secrets and tear people up. But in sharing them, we can connect with others in our humanity. For me, the last past few years, I've lost multiple people in my life, including two grandparents. And I have horses, so several horses and a few cats. I feel that many deaths in my life have been major benchmarks in how I view the world. We like to say that grief is or can be transformative. You don't need to stay stuck in the hard parts. Grief is one of life's certainties. It allows us to be connected to each other's humanity. If you're here in the early stages of grief, we're here to say it's hard. We're here to say be kind to yourself and thank yourself for showing up for being curious about what grief can look like in its wholeness. These conversations are not a prescription. We're just here offering you a little bit of hope. So as we like to say, grab your coffee or whatever's in your cup and let's talk. Today, we're delighted to welcome Adam Strong, who will read a piece of his writing and then we'll be in conversation with him. Adam is a writer, illustrator, and high school digital art teacher. His work has appeared in Entropy, The Atticus Review, Nailed Magazine, Mountain Bluebird Magazine, and in the anthologies City of Weird, The Untold Gaze, and on the Storytellers Telling Stories podcast. He writes, draws, and loves in Portland, Oregon. You can check the show notes to find out more about Adam and where to find his writing. So today, we're so delighted. Hi, Adam. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. What will you be reading for us today? I'm going to be reading um, from my memoir that's, that I'm currently working on. It's entitled uh, Code Strong. And um, the piece that I'm going to read uh, is something that just took place a couple weeks ago uh, when I flew back east to visit my dad. And um, that's all you need to know uh, about the piece as far as um, keeping up with it chronologically. 2023, March, Knoxville, Tennessee. Your dad is in the hospital because the amyloidosis that started in his heart, then moved to his kidneys, had spread to his other vital organs. The previous Christmas, you and your wife and your two daughters, 14 and 12, flew out for a visit. You knew that dad's doctor had given his kidneys six months before he would need dialysis. 
You didn't know it would be the last one before the specter of dialysis loomed the way specters often loom, high above, spiking every joyous event with a through line that went all the way down to the downest down. A few weeks after Christmas, you got a phone call from mom. The amyloidosis deteriorated the kidneys fast enough to where dad needed dialysis now. He had an appointment at the local hospital to get a port installed for the dialysis. While he was there, the docs discovered scar tissue on his liver, which meant he had cirrhosis. There were liver spots on his body that weren't there before, dark purple things that reminded you of every soon-to-be-dead guy on TV. His spleen was enlarged. His platelet count dropped. He wasn't allowed to leave the hospital until his platelet count improved. Jeremy, your brother-in-law, called you. These emails, texts, and phone calls were increasing. We'd hate Christmas to be the last time you saw him, Jeremy said. You should come now. His mind is sharper than ever, even though his body is not. Two days later, you were on a $200 round-trip flight with an 18-hour layover. You spent the night in Denver with your wife's brother, Ben, who was learning that he has autism, and that this had explained so much of what happened to him over the last 30 years or so. You weren't sure if it was because of your dad's condition or Ben's awareness of his autism, but he'd never seemed happier or more capable of showing his love for you. You didn't know if it was your dad's declining health, but any anger or resentment you'd had of Ben for not ever doing a single dish without being asked flew out the window. You'd been roommates off and on for decades now. Since you met his sister, you'd watched him grow from a confused young man to a slightly less confused adult. When he dropped you off at the airport the next day, he rubbed your shoulder before he said goodbye. You arrived late that night. Jeremy, your brother-in-law, picked you up from the airport. You gave your mom a hug and drank a non-alcoholic beer. Your sister was already in bed. The next day, you waited until the kidney doctor left with the latest news that there was still more tests that needed to be done. Morning turned into afternoon. You'd been in dad's hospital room for several hours, but it was only then that the memories that were exchanged between you and your dad were Gary-related. This was an all-cards-on-the-table moment, if there ever was one. You'd forgiven your dad years ago, when after a few glasses of wine for him and beer for you, was the first time of many he apologized for being a shitty father. Yes, that's right, he said those exact words. I guess I was a pretty shitty father, he said. I'm really sorry about that. How many men do that? Apologize. That men are even capable of change. You mentioned to your dad about what you talked about with your therapist, how it was the combination of three strands of trauma that had messed you up the most. When your dad heard that, he put his eyes on you, not in the way he used to. In this man now, in this place, the anger had all washed away. He wanted to know because he cared, because he loved you. That was all. Your dad asked you what the source of your trauma was. Here it was. And the truth was between the two of you. It was Gary, the bullying, and you, you said. How easy it is for you to detect the tears in other people. I'm really sorry about that. He was sitting up on the couch by the hospital bed. In the distance loomed the foothills of the Great Smoky Mountains. Gary, how just the name brings up a shared history that is no longer you. A flinch in you because of muscle memory. What happens to the flinch when the memories no longer require it? These memories are not attached to rage or anger. You left that behind with the booze. And the last book you wrote. It was all for dad, for forgiveness. Everything else is gravy. 
then you, your mom and dad started talking about Gary for the first time in years, about how you could be so completely brainwashed. You in that stiff ass chair in the hospital read your dad's story about how you destroyed one of three cars you owned over the course of two years. There was drinking and silly things and the three of you were there laughing. A few months back when it was published, you were embarrassed to share it with your parents on account of all the bad behavior the story chronicled. Now though, you were laughing about the whole experience like it never had been traumatic. Your mom came up with a memory that you had completely forgotten about. It was the spring of freshman year. Gary was at his college, Tufts, and he had this idea that you and Gary would go to the same residential treatment center. That, according to Gary, was the only way you could have any shot at happiness, was to go away and take care of this problem once and for all. Gary went on and on about your own finer motor tremor, which was true. You seemed to operate as if powered by a motor, but you didn't need to be pulled from Carolina, a place that was just starting to work out for you. But for Gary, it was his chance to steer you away from that place in a way that would avoid the whole you finding yourself at college trope altogether. And that residential treatment center in New England, you'd receive the finest anti-anxiety treatment possible. And you'd do it all under the watchful eye of Gary, seeing that you never broke out on your own. Gary dangled the carrot of company like no one else. That's why he was able to string you along for as long as he did, because for years you were his only true friend and you his. Although he breadcrumbed out the idea that he had other friends, but chose to hang out with you because you were that important. But that needle setting could be adjusted. And every once in a while, he'd be busy with his other friends and he'd show it to you. Like the time he showed up to your job at Rudy's Hamburgers with Jason and Craig. Gary barely introduced you. It was as if you were an embarrassment. Although looking back on it, it made sense that Gary would want to cultivate that image of you. You never did hear what happened to his friends. Oh, that's right. They were evil or they thought Gary was evil. But Gary flipped it so he wasn't the one to blame. Then it was back to the world doesn't understand us, Adam. We were meant for each other. He even joked about a suicide pact. Would you kill yourself if I did, Adam? Or maybe you're one of those neither hot or cold people. Did you know there is a passage in the Bible that says that those who are neither hot or cold will be the ones who go to hell? That's always been you, hasn't it, Adam? Not really expressing a personality one way or another. That's what Jason calls you, Mr. No Personality. After that night, you, Gary, and Craig, and Jason hung out after your shift ended at Rudy's Hamburgers. He seemed nice enough. Rudy's was one of those gourmet burger joints where a couple of years later, the manager who trained you got shot in the chest. The guy who showed you how to clean the bevel around the ketchup container in the walk-in was found one morning with a bullet in his chest in that same walk-in. This was a couple of years after you graduated and Gary told you, you didn't know if this was some sort of Gary don't fuck with me fabrication. Of course, he found the whole thing hilarious. I'm glad he's dead, Gary said. The guy was a dick. Gary might've seemed to be all fun and games, but he could be scary too. Gary would call the suicide hotline for company He'd pretend he was suicidal so he could have someone to talk to. One night he got too wrapped up in the performance. He never could admit that he actually was suicidal. This was how he had his fun. One night the folks down at the suicide hotline believed his performance enough to where they traced a call. And after he hung up saying he was gonna kill himself, less than an hour later, an ambulance showed up at his house. His father woke up screaming about why there was an ambulance at the house at four in the morning. One day, Gary needed to talk to his dad. 
His dad had an office on the other side of the garage. Nicholas had expanded the garage to include space for a small office and a mini warehouse for the Italian picture frames and pens he shipped all over the country. His dad had his own phone line just for the office. One day, Gary thought he was calling his dad's office, but instead of his dad picking up, there was instead a grunt of a hello, which to Gary was instant amusement. Papa, Gary said, I'm not your papa boy. An addiction was born. Prank calling Ed. Every hour of every day, Gary would call Ed before school, after school at two, three, four in the morning. You'd be over there, you'd crank call him. You and Gary left hundreds of messages on his answering machine. Gary was the culprit for most of them, but you were on a couple of messages. This went on for months, years. You'd be on the phone with Gary and there would be pops, crackles. I think someone's been tapping my phone, Gary said. They were. Gary Crank called Ed so often the police put a tap on Gary's phone and he ended up going to court. The guy was in a wheelchair, which was why this guy got so mad whenever we asked him if he was an athlete. According to Gary, they played some of the messages in the courtroom. Your stuttered voice was porky pigging all throughout the courtroom, Adam. They knew there was another person, but since I made the bulk of the calls, they weren't that interested in you. All these signs were presented to you, all of them yours to ignore. Wow, Adam, thank you so much. That's that. Well, that's so good and so beautifully told. And I love how you're, it'll, I'll be so curious to read this as, as it goes on. Like, I love how you're weaving the family story with the friend story. Um, yeah. And I love that it's a, I mean, I find myself saying this on here, but I, I also, I love that it's a different kind of grief than what people traditionally think of as grief. Because yeah. right? we hear that word and so often think it's just the death of a beloved and it is so much more. Um, so thank you for introducing us to an, yet another type of grief today. <laughs> yeah, it's like that three-pronged grief that I talked about. Um, and I didn't realize just how connected those two pieces are. Um, the reason why I was writing about my dad was because it was something I just experienced. And uh, I when I was in Tennessee, and this was like two weeks ago, I couldn't write at all. And I normally write, you know, I'm always working on something. And uh, then a few days after I came back, uh, I started writing about it. And then all of these memories of this person that I'm writing about in my memoir came up right at the same time. And then we actually spoke about it. And it was just this convergence of the two things that I'm really thinking about right now were happening at the same time. Um, and so I wanted to keep that because I feel like there's some connection there and, and a lot of healing <laughs> as well in both of those areas. Oh, I do. I think it's one of the beautiful things about writing is that you get to go explore it in a way that's, that's different than just talking about it. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, and the, the good that it can do to write about the things that you don't realize all the ways in which you've been moved by, by this past grief in your life. Yeah. So uh, one of the things we like to ask everybody is just kind of a brief version of your grief story, whether that's yeah. through your life or a short story. Um, yeah. So as far as grief story, I had that I had that friend that I was friends with from fifth grade till the year 2000. Um, 
because the story with my dad is kind of still going on right now. I mean, he the the good thing is we got him out of the hospital, so he's stabilized now. Uh, and my mom's learning dialysis, so he's in a much better place than he was when he first went into the hospital. Um, but that that friend, his real name is not Gary. I'm not putting his real name down, but um, really had an effect on the way I saw myself as a person. Um, and I didn't realize that he was kind of controlling the way I thought about myself. And this book is an attempt to sort of unpack that and make sense of something that really didn't make sense to me because I didn't put all, all the ways he was manipulating me together until I was uh, like 28 years old, um, which <laughs> is kind of strange. Uh, he was just really good at it. Like I knew he was manipulating me in some ways, but I didn't see that the entire thing was a manipulation until 2000. Um, so I guess that's kind of my grief story because ever since then I've been trying to figure out who I am um, and realizing that the person I've been telling myself I am, I'm not. And, and that's a really freeing, wonderful thing. Yeah. Yes, it is. Um which kind of leads me to um, our, how'd you experience grief when you were younger? Although your, your story tells us some of that already, but is there anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah. Um, music, music and comic books to me were the, were the worlds that I escaped to and books, books in general. Um, you know, I could read a short story as a kid um, because like growing up, I, I was, um, like emotionally abused by my dad quite a bit. There was lots of yelling and screaming. And my dad was out of town on business. And when he was home, he was kind of had a lot on, on the line for him financially. Um, so while that was happening, I needed an escape. And music was top 40 radio in the 80s in Florida. It was just the thing I listened to over and over and over again. Like Pet Shop Boys, West End Girls. Like I could lose myself in that song and I kind of did you know so I would say music was a really big escape and then drawing and um, comic books and stories and novels and stuff like that well and so I, I love hearing that and how is that translated into your adult life now um nowadays the escape that I've really been enjoying is um me like this sounds nuts because I never would have thought I'd be in this place is me like playing sports me playing soccer uh, is something be that I really enjoy and I get to be in my body and I get to be the one making things happen and I never I didn't have that confidence when I was younger to I always loved playing but I wasn't I was really uncoordinated and there was all this anxiety wrapped up with it and now to just to be present and to be playing with other people as an adult and feeling confident about that just feels wonderful. I feel like I don't really need to escape. I need to be more like present and aware or something like that. Um, because I, I feel like if my first part of my life was escaping, this part is just being present. Like that's kind of what it's all about. So do you, is there anything um, in particular or in general that you might say to someone who's grieving? Um, I would just recognize what they're going through and how everybody has their own rules for it. And that there isn't 
there is the societal expectation, um, you know, put on by us by the media and uh, the cultures in which we represent and cultures in which we don't represent. Um, but everybody has their own way of grieving and that you'll find yours. Uh, and that things are probably going to be disruptive, but I love you and I care about you. Maybe I would say that. Because I'm a high school teacher, so it's like kind of what I do. <laughs> well, I think that's beautiful. And I'm such a, we're such believers in oftentimes that's all people need to hear. Yeah. Right. We, people put pressure on themselves. Like I'm supposed to say the right thing. And that just you know, comes from that, like fix it mentality. And really the, the thing is to do what you're doing and to be present and tell people we love them. Yeah. And I think there are so many people that are not used to having grief be present in your life almost every day to where you can sit down with it or you're looking at it in the corner when you're having your coffee and maybe it's out the window and it's like this bright thing one day and this darker thing another day um but it's a lot of people when they experience it they their their brain just kind of freaks out because they all of a sudden are realizing all the they're seeing the full gamut of how sad and uh, empty life can be without somebody, especially a really close loved one. Um, yeah. And be kind to yourself and others. How do you kind of feel where you're at in relationship with your dad right now and maybe your grief journey on that? Yeah. Um, so when I was there visiting, uh, the conversations that I kind of said it in the piece was the all cards on the table moment, which was a really freeing, uh, wonderful time just to be feel like I can truly be myself um, and be seen and have it be accepted. And I don't have to hold anything back anymore. And that every moment that I'm spending with him is like the best moment because it's the present moment kind of a thing. Um, and then the rest is, uh, I'm in a lot of not knowing. I have no idea. You know, my dad has a good day. My dad has a bad day. Um, but the bad days are not as bad as they were because they know the reasons why. Um, so it, when he, one of the reasons why he stayed in the hospital for 10 days was because they were not sure if it was something else other than the amyloidosis that was causing all the the chain reaction of the spleen, of the kidneys, of the heart, of the all the vital inter, internal organs. And then when they discovered that, oh, okay, it's actually the amyloidosis is just progressing. Um, there was a little bit of acceptance there, but uh, we went out to dinner. There was a bunch of family in town and it was a really special moment. Uh, but on the plane, it was, it kind of hit me because for the whole time I'd been keeping this facade of everything being okay, or not being okay, but getting to the next step, the next day, the next appointment, the next, um, you know, uh, restaurant visit. <laughs> had a, ate so had so many great meals with my mom, um, but well, that kind of broke when I got on the plane because then I then I was just me with this new knowledge and how am I going to adjust to life with this new knowledge with this idea of this person who. Uh, I had a relationship that was very painful with him for a while, but now that we've patched things up, it's been really wonderful. Um, 
And it really hit me hard at that point. I've since then really kind of just been well. <clears throat> Try to appreciate all the good that you can and don't dwell on the negative, which isn't my usual <laughs> tendency. My usual tendency is to is to dwell on the negative. But now what I do when I want to do that is I make art and I and I play soccer and stuff. And those two things seem to be, and I teach, you know, teaching, I get to be a big goof for a living and they pay me for it. Um, all I'm saying is I have like a puppet at, at work that I speak through and it's not, it's just joy, you know, it's just silliness and fun and, uh, and making a safe space to make art and to have others make art. So that's kind of where I'm at. Um, it's being comfortable with not know or not comfortable with knowing because some days that not knowing drives me nuts, but just accepting that every day is precious. Well, I know we're just, we're not, um, we're just on audio. So you couldn't see me start to cry, but what you just shared, like that's such a huge gift to people listening um, that you could, that you've had this painful relationship with your father, but you were able, I mean, I wrote it down when you said it all cards on the table moment that you were able to have that honest, vulnerable two-way conversation, right? That he yeah. was, that you were able to do it and he was able to do that for you. And I just think that's a huge gift. It's a huge gift for me to hear that. It's a huge gift for people to hear that that's, that that is a possibility, right? And that you, and, and I'm going to, I'm, just knowing you some that part of why that was possible for you is your willingness to be vulnerable yeah. and, and, you know, and recognizing like, you don't know what's going to happen, but you know what you have at this moment. And so you did something beautiful with it. So I just really want to thank you for that and acknowledge you for that. Yeah. He just kept wanting to have these great intense conversations, which is exactly what I love to do. And um, so to see that coming through, coming from him and he and I both wanting it at the same time was just, <laughs> I mean, it's perfect because sometimes I think, you know, Hey, why is Adam always asking all these uncomfortable questions and being like in kind of an overshare sometimes, you know, um, but I'm modeling vulnerability, but vulnerability is the thing that's really healed me. Cause as, as I've had to let go of things, now I'm more open. Sometimes I can be hurt more easily because of that but most of the time it just feels really good to be in a position where I can be vulnerable it's like me being a 50 year old running around and trying to steal a soccer ball from like a 22 year old you know uh it's just joy it's because I still can't <laughs> that's awesome well um is there anything that you'd like to share that's been really helpful support that you've received in your grief like it's sort yeah. of two-sided, like how have you supported others and how have others supported you that's been helpful? Um, so it seems like every writer I know is writing um, to face the ghosts of inside themselves and that ghost manifests in some way as grief. Um, and working with my writing group members and trying to kind of unlock some of that in people um, with what they're writing and supporting one another is one of the greatest feelings I know of as being a human. Um, helping students figure stuff out, but uh, most of the time I, I don't give a lot of really complicated advice like that. Lots of times they go to a counselor because they're, the counselor is much better at 
that. <laughs> and I might tell them something that maybe I shouldn't tell them. So, you know, I'll just say, yeah, good time to go to counselor. But um, yeah, um, I think we've pretty much, oh, the other thing is uh, in the past, I, I used to run a, a reading series in town called Songbook. And I had a lot of people that had never read before and they were writing about the death of a loved one and or the death of a relationship i had uh, a friend of mine who hi jen if you're listening by the way we went to high school together and we actually went to the prom together <laughs> and she moved to portland a few years ago um i think she was in uh, new zealand just a few weeks ago actually but um i helped her write this piece that was like a farewell to her uh, ex-wife and um being a part of that and helping her put words to her grief and help, you know, that was, and I don't know what the long-term effect of that was, but I think it was pretty positive and being a part of that was pretty wonderful. So I try to do that when I can, although lately I've been, I haven't been running Songbook and I've been focusing my energies on supporting my students the best that I can because COVID, if COVID taught me one thing, it was to be a more aware teacher and being more present and, um, being there for them because they really need uh, people that care right now, regardless of age. It doesn't have to be a, a young person. It doesn't have to be an old person. It's just anybody who gives who gives a crap, really. <laughs> Your students are lucky to have you. Thank you. I'm there for them. That's what I tell them all the time. Uh, we always kind of like to ask Amanda if there's anything else you would like to add, if you had any other thoughts you wanted to share. Um, no, not at this time. Not at this time. Thank you. Thank you so much lot. for having me. It's been wonderful. Oh, it's been our pleasure. Thank you for being with us. That was wonderful. Um, if you want to connect with Adam, you can check in the show notes. And if you want to connect with us, feel free to email us at coffeeandgrief at gmail.com. You can come join our community on Facebook. It's the Coffee and Grief Community. Uh, feel free to look us up. We do something called Coffee Talk the first Thursday of every month. It's somewhat like today. There's five different readers who will read a personal grief story, uh, but there won't be any conversation with it afterwards. It's really a nice little hour out of your month. The Zoom link will be on our Facebook page under the Coffee Talk of the month. If there's something you'd like us to talk about, please let us know at that email, coffeeandgrief at gmail.com. Adam, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I always like to end with saying, be good to yourself. Be kind to your heart. Drink plenty of water. Do something nice for yourself. And if you have the bandwidth, do something nice for another. Please come back. This is our joy to do. And we love to have you listening. Till next time. We love you. We love you. Bye. Bye.